Our scripture reading today comes from John 3, 1 through 15. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So if I were to ask you this morning what you think is the greatest obstacle to faith in Jesus, what would it be? Take a quick second, think about it. As I did my own brainstorming around that question this week, a few things came to mind right away. It was like doubt, skepticism, cynicism, uh, busyness, complacency, distraction came to mind. Maybe they did for you. I don't think they're bad guesses, but you know, the longer I've been in ministry uh, and the more I've studied uh, the scripture, the more I wonder if the greatest obstacle to faith is not outright idolatry, it's not hedonism or, or pleasure seeking. I wonder if the greatest obstacle to faith in Jesus isn't what we would consider the immoral life, but perhaps the moral one. Perhaps what blinds us more than anything else to true gospel faith in Jesus is religion. And there are a lot of ways to avoid an encounter with Jesus, but I think the most subtle way to do it, and I think this is scary for us, but the most subtle way to do it is to attend Jesus' church and to follow the rules and have absolutely no clue who he really is or what he really cares about. Religion, in, in that sense can be as deadly as a blatant lifestyle of outright rejection of God. And in the New Testament, if you don't believe me, in the New Testament, remember with me, it's, it's, it's pretty consistent that the people who most ardently opposed Jesus were not the Gentile pagans. They weren't the polytheists. They were religious leaders and whose job it was to know and to study their Bibles. And they preached and they taught and they were responsible 
for shepherding God's people, and they were to prepare God's people for God's rescue to come, and they couldn't stand Jesus. Now, that scares me a little bit, because sometimes I wonder if the greatest obstacle to Jesus is religion. And listen, like churches can be full of religious people, and I, I'm saying this because I want us to consider it. Religious people, moral people, upstanding citizens who do not know Jesus. They've never met him. It is also perhaps full of people who have met Jesus but have forgotten in subtle ways along the way what true gospel faith is and what life with Jesus is all about. And John's gospel, which we've been in now for the past couple of weeks, doesn't shy away from this conversation. This, this text we just read is about a guy named Nicodemus. He's very interested in Jesus and he's also very religious, very devout. And Jesus does not mince words with him. He confronts Nicodemus because he knows the danger that religiosity can pose when it comes to real faith in him. So if you haven't done this yet, take your Bible, turn to the book of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's the fourth book in your your New Testament, chapter 3. Okay, here's verse 1 again. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. So stop there for a second. Let's put Nicodemus in context here a little bit and where Jesus is as well. So remember with me, Jesus' ministry, his public ministry has really just begun. His star is rising. Perhaps people are beginning to notice him. Probably rumors are beginning to circulate around the wedding at Cana. And man, there was water and then it became wine. Maybe those rumors have spread from Galilee to Judea. Anyone who paid attention to John the Baptist, and we know he he was very popular as a religious teacher and prophet himself. If they were listening to him at all, they, they, they heard him talk about this uh, Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And maybe some people begin to say, you know, he said that about this guy, Jesus of Nazareth. So Jesus is popular, but he's also controversial. And if you were here last week, uh, you heard Pastor Brent talk about uh, Jesus entering the temple, the center of religious life for all of Israel. Uh, And he began flipping over tables and, and causing a stir. And many of the religious establishment in Israel were not big fans of that. And now here comes Nicodemus in the middle of the night, to come and speak with Jesus. Now, it's hard for us to understand perhaps who Nicodemus was at this time, how we're supposed to read his character here in this context. So let me just tell you how a pastor would look at Nicodemus today if you were trying to plant a church and this guy wanted to meet you for coffee. This would be your dream guy. This guy. If I were Jesus and I were trying to start a movement, I was trying to start a revival in Israel... This is the recruit I would want to join my team. Because sure, you've got some fishermen and from Galilee, and they're great. Their hearts are in the right place. There's a lot of potential there, but this guy's a professional. This guy could preach while I'm on vacation, okay? This guy could be my number two right out of the gate, and he's influential. He's got friends in high places. Okay, we could really get something going here. 
Nicodemus has an incredible pedigree. John gives you a little bit of it here. He's a trained Pharisee, which was an elite sect of Judaism, very popular, known for their commitment to Scripture and their devotion to God. He knows his Bible backwards and forwards. He's a trained theologian. He's an experienced leader. He's a member of the ruling council of the Jews. Nicodemus on paper is everything you and I think God wants in a disciple. He probably reads his Bible more than you and I do, probably prayed more than you and I do, gave alms to the poor, fasted regularly. He believed in the inerrancy of Scripture. He believed in the resurrection at the end of time. He believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay, orthodox to the core. Nicodemus was an admirable person, most likely disciplined, moral, hardworking. Think of the best, most upstanding person you know. That's who Nicodemus is. You want to be his neighbor. You want your kids to grow up to be him. You want to listen to him teach and preach. If anybody has an in with Jesus, it's this guy. And he comes to Jesus to talk on his own initiative. He's interested. And he begins the conversation about as politely as as you could. He says, Rabbi, teacher, it's a term of respect. I know you're something special. The things you do, things I've heard that you do, only God's power could do them. And the way the story reads, it's, it's like Jesus interrupts him in the middle of his thought. In fact, if you were to read Nicodemus' conversation with Jesus straight through, you never really know why Nicodemus wanted to talk to Jesus in the first place. Jesus stops him dead in his tracks, and he says, Truly, truly, I tell you, Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The only equivalent I could think of, and it's not perfect, but it's like if you came up to a, a preacher after a sermon and say, Hey, That was really good and helpful for me. And the preacher said, wait, wait, just stop. Do you know what a spiritual mess you actually are? It's like, ouch. And also like, what? (laughs) What are we talking about? It's hard to know exactly what Nicodemus was thinking when he hears Jesus say this to him. But I have to imagine at some point, it was something like, don't you know who I am? And what I could do for you? If you just convince me a little bit of who you are, like I'm here, I'm interested, my other friends aren't here, but I am, doesn't that count for something? Now, I don't know if if Nicodemus thought that when he came to Jesus, when he started this conversation, if he thought that his training and his morality and his ethics and his integrity gave him any advantage or, or foothold with Jesus, But if he did, Jesus makes it abundantly clear right away that those things, his education, his orthodoxy, his good works, his pedigree, his social circles, his reputation, his gifts, his charisma, they don't mean anything to him and faith in him. And this is the first danger of religiosity. Religious people think that they have leverage with Jesus, but they don't. I can't know this for sure, but my hunch is that Nicodemus and people like him approached Jesus thinking they had something to offer to him, something that could change how he interacted with them, that would give them a leverage over him, 
There's, in fact, this famous parable that illustrates the point that Jesus himself taught about his father and the kingdom. It's about a father and two sons. Both of the sons are, are very far from their father, but in completely different ways. One is through outright rebellion and pleasure-seeking and rejection of his father, and he runs away. And the other is through legalism and following all the rules and staying as physically close to his father as he possibly can so that his father owes him something. Now, only one of these sons ends up completely estranged from his father. And I'll give you a hint, it's not the one you think. Okay, if we follow the rules, but we do it to get an advantage with God, like he owes us something, it is just as dangerous. It's perhaps even more dangerous than flat out running away from God. This is why Jesus interrupts Nicodemus' flattery. And he says, Nicodemus, I don't know what you think this is, but it's not a negotiation. You have no leverage with me. You you can't earn this, whatever it is that you're looking for. We have no leverage with God. Our our Bible knowledge, our our church attendance, our generosity, our service, our, our sin avoidance, those are all good things. But not one of them gives us leverage over God. None of them puts God in our debt. Because if anyone had leverage, it was Nicodemus. And Jesus says, I'm not interested. Most of us probably don't imagine that we approach God like this, right? Like we don't consciously go to God thinking, I'm going to manipulate God today. <laughs> but take a, take a close look at our responses to certain things. What happens when our prayers go unanswered or we get the answer we don't want? Okay, is our knee-jerk reaction in those moments to question God, like, I don't deserve this. When the agreement between you and God fails, okay, that unspoken one, that one you'd never probably say aloud to yourself or to anyone else, but the agreement is that if I follow the rules, then good things will come to me. The things I want will come to me. When that agreement breaks down, what is your response? Is it greater trust? Is it greater rest? Or is it anger and doubt and withdrawal? Okay? When you see other people fail in their lives, is the first thought a prideful one? Like, man, I would never do anything like that. Too close to God. You see, these subtle, these, these are subtle dangers that even if we profess to come to Jesus as pure sinners, as broken people in need of grace, we still think we're better sinners than others. Right? I'm a sinner, God, I know, but at least I'm not that sinner. And because I'm not that sinner, you give me a little bit more than you give to that person. And if we approach Jesus that way, he will, he will interrupt us. He'll interrupt our prayers. He'll interrupt our questions. He'll say, listen, unless you're born again, none of this matters. Your morality, your religion gives no leverage with Jesus. That's the point. But it's not the only danger that comes from a religious approach to Jesus, okay, that Nicodemus illustrates. If you look back, at Nicodemus' first words to Jesus, he says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God 
is with him. Now, Nicodemus is, like I said, is very polite here. Uh, and I think he genuinely comes to Jesus for help. He's interested. I'm sure Nicodemus, despite uh, his strong character, he, he knows he's not a perfect person. He knows he has flaws. He's probably thinking, Jesus, you know, I could use some spiritual help. I could use a little top-off from a guy like you. Seems sharp. You look at things differently. Okay, I need some supplemental help, Jesus. Kind of round me out a little bit more. And this is the idea, is that religious people think they're mature, but they aren't. They think they're good, but need improvement. They don't think, as Jesus clearly does, that they are dead people who must be born again. Jesus says to Nicodemus, you, you think you need a little help, but you need a new start from scratch. Do we come to Jesus because we hope that he'll make us better people? Are we here to build our lives on what we think is already a pretty good foundation for life? How many of us come to Jesus and say, Jesus, we know you're a gifted teacher and thinker. Help me become a better person. How many of us relate to Jesus like he's a main speaker at a conference? He's someone to learn from, to gather information from, rather than someone who has come to completely uproot our entire lives and our, and our, our, our identity. To be born again. Nicodemus is completely baffled by Jesus' response. He says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And it's not hard to understand why. Being born again is not something religious people want to hear. I've noticed in my experience that with the people we think will struggle the most, perhaps with a new birth in Christ, they often accept it the fastest. Like the addict, the, the promiscuous person, the outsider, the social outcast. They want the new life. They want a fresh start that Jesus is offering to them. They want to leave their past behind and move on into new life with Jesus. But the religious people don't. Because religious people aren't simply called to leave behind their bad deeds, but their good ones as well. They must look back on their integrity and their righteousness and their reputation apart from Jesus and call it rubbish, garbage, worthless, as Paul does in Philippians 3. He says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. Okay, Paul and Nicodemus have a very similar pedigree here. And the idea here is, it's like, well, God, so you're saying that all the hard work and the following the rules and the obeying my parents and the getting the good grades and the keeping my nose clean didn't move my spiritual needle with you at all? No. You must count them as loss compared to knowing the grace of Jesus Christ. And that is so hard for religious people who have built their identity on their religious accomplishment. Because anything we build our lives on apart from Jesus, the things we often think about like pleasure or comfort or power or money or the things we don't think about, our moral integrity, our reputation for being a good person will hinder our conversation with him. We have to repent of all of it. But being born again is hard for another reason too. Nicodemus will say this because he's confused and a little offended, but he's closer to the truth than he realizes. 
he says back to Jesus, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus is saying, Jesus, a man can't give birth to himself again. And Jesus says, you're absolutely right. You have no control over this at all. Religion, by the way, is all about control. Right? It's about checking certain boxes. If I do X, Y, and Z, then I'll be okay. I'll get what I want. Jesus says to the religious, you must be born again. And this is something only God can do for you. You cannot give birth to yourself. If you've ever, if you've ever been in a delivery room, you know that. Right? Baby doesn't help that much. And neither does dad, but that's a separate sermon, right? You cannot give birth to yourself. This is also why Jesus will use the metaphor of wind in verse 8. He says, Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wishes. And yeah, you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. He's saying, Nicodemus, you cannot control God with your behavior. It's not how it works. The new birth... This entrance into a new kingdom, into salvation, is a gift that only God can give. It cannot be earned. And religious people, whether we're aware of it or not, we we can build our lives on the promise that God's favor can be earned. We can do it. And sometimes it's hard to receive Jesus' words here as good news because of that. It's It's too painful. And Martin Lloyd Jones, he was a preacher of the last century, he would often say there was a very simple way to determine if someone understood this teaching on being born again, on the grace Jesus offers, and the contrast it has with a moral life, the good, the, the good moral life. He would ask them in his office, right, if they came to him for spiritual counsel or whatever, he would ask them, how do you know you're a Christian? Take a minute. How, how would you answer? How do you know that you're a Christian? And for Lloyd-Jones, if someone responded, well, I'm trying my hardest and I'm working at it and I'm getting better, that that was evidence that you were approaching Jesus as a religious person. You weren't repenting of your good deeds. You, You weren't relinquishing control. That isn't to say we don't want to grow more and more into Christ's likeness, but if that's the foundation of how we relate to God, it won't work. Because a Christian can say, I'm a Christian because Jesus died the death I should have died. And he lived the life that I could live. He gave me new birth. That's how I know. No, a man cannot enter the womb a second time. But Jesus is saying God through his spirit can make you alive. Really alive. Born by grace into a life of redemption. Has this happened to us? Are are things coming to life inside of us that that were once dead before? Not because we're trying to look the part, but because we're new. Do we trust God with our spiritual status or do we continue to try to earn his favor? Does the Bible, the truth of God, come alive for us when we read it and study it? Or is it just information? Is it just advice on how to live our best lives now? Do, Do we only... Repent of the things we do wrong, but not for the things we do right for the wrong reasons. Do we retreat from God when we sin? Because deep down, 
we think that God loves us a little bit less on our bad days and a little bit more on our good days. And that we've got to watch his love like the stock market. Christianity is not about making good people. It's about making new people. And everyone needs to hear this, but especially the religious among us. Are we trying to grow up before we've been born again? And there's a final lesson here of this religious approach to Jesus. It's really the logical conclusion of the other two, but it's perhaps the most perilous, at least I think so. Jesus, he frames this whole conversation with with Nicodemus around seeing and entering God's kingdom. That's, That's a metaphor that's all over the Bible. God's kingdom is reign. Uh, that would have been very familiar to Nicodemus as a, as a teacher of uh, the Old Testament. Entering God's kingdom, it meant salvation. It, it meant being on God's side at the end of history. It, it meant resurrection to new life with him. It meant entrance in, into heaven. This is, this is what Nicodemus would have heard when, he, when Jesus mentions the kingdom of God. And no doubt Nicodemus had for years taught people that the way to know God is to obey his commands and to devote themselves fully to him and to submit to his will, all good things, by the way. But now Jesus tells them, none of that is enough. That's not enough. Jesus says, Nicodemus, no one studied their way into God's kingdom. No one prayed their way into God's kingdom. No one changed their life in order to enter God's kingdom. God must provide a way in. He must do it. And everyone, no matter who you are, must follow his way or it won't matter. It won't, you won't enter. And Jesus illustrates his point this way. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, Nicodemus, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, this is a reference to a story in the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 21, when God's people are they're wandering through the wilderness and they're complaining about God and they're tired and they're hungry and they even look at the manna, the bread that God provides from heaven. They call it worthless food. They're sick of it. It's like, God, you owe us better than this, if that sounds familiar at all. So God sends snakes into the camp with a venomous bite so that some of God's people even die. It's, a really, it's weird, I know. It's like, Jesus, why, are you, why is this how you end this? But just watch. To deal with the problem, God told his people to build a bronze statue of a snake and to put it on a pole and to put it in the camp. And then God said, everyone who's bitten when he sees it shall live. Now think with me, everyone in the camp is equally infected. Man, woman, young, old, moral, immoral. Everyone is infected. Everyone's at risk of death. No one is safe. And everyone had one way to live. The bronze serpent. See, the serpents here, this, this, it's a great equalizer. Doesn't matter if you're good, bad, or ugly. You need God's help. You're not going to make it without it. If you don't look to his help, you're dead. Period. And some of us, I wonder, we think we're safe because we're, we're in God's camp. But that's not, that's not it. We may sound like a believer and look like a believer, but be related to other believers, but, but we aren't. And this is the final danger of the religious. Religious people think they believe 
They don't. Jesus is saying it's not enough to be in God's camp. It's not not enough to be around God's people in his church and to fit in and to read his book. You've got to look at the Son of Man lifted up on the cross. He says you have to look at God's way. What is perhaps most sobering to me about this story of Nicodemus is there is a way to study the Bible and to study God, as Nicodemus has done his whole life. There's a way to be a person of great moral integrity and real spiritual knowledge. There's a way to study Jesus and not recognize him when he's sitting right next to you. There is a way to think you've believed, but you have not. And there may be people in this room who who are tempted to approach Jesus the way Nicodemus does. You've not yet heard Jesus say to you, "I, I can't do anything with you like this. You must be born again. You've not come empty-handed. You're not looking at the cross. You're still looking at your own effort to earn from God. You haven't seen the Son of Man lifted up. You haven't realized that what Jesus came to do was to free you from the performance that could never save you anyway. This is what it will take years and years for Nicodemus to realize, though he will get there. We'll get to that later. Jesus did not come to condemn the religious. He came to free them. He isn't arguing fundamentally with Nicodemus. He's inviting him. He isn't judging. He's saving. He's saying, Nicodemus, you're infected, but I'm the cure. And he offers us the same. If we can see him lifted up. And when we see him lifted up, We can see not only our worst sin, but our best effort. Not only our lowest moments, but our crowning achievements. Not only our weaknesses and failures, but our victories and strengths apart from him. And when that happens, we too have been born again. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now not because we have an advantage with you, not because we have something to offer you, not because we think we've got this. We come to you because we have none of that. We come to you because we want to see for the first time, the hundredth time, the thousandth time, the Son of Man lifted up. To see his perfect life lived out before you on our behalf and his sacrificial death in our place. And we pray, may these words be true of us, the words of the old hymn, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress, helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Amen.